It's, uh, it's a real joy to be uh, back and to see so many people uh, this morning uh, gathered. Um, we just really can't wait till we see all of these uh, seats filled with people worshipping the Lord once again and being able to really take off our masks and sing as John has been encouraging us. Um, we're going to be, as you've probably guessed, going to be looking at uh, the book of Revelation, the final part of chapter 2, um, and the church in Thyatira. Um, and so let's just pray before uh, we look at that. Heavenly Father, once again we come into your presence to uh, seek your face and to hear from you. And we pray that you would be with us this morning as we look into your word and we hear what it says and we uh, are challenged by what it brings to us. Help us now and lead us by your spirit, the spirit of truth that leads us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've been following this kind of um, series uh, over the last few months, you'll know that we're um, uh, remaining in the very end of chapter one of the book of, uh, sorry, chapter two of the book of Revelation. But in chapter one, we find the kind of background to what's going on here. John the Apostle is probably in his 80s or 90s, very old man. And uh, he's a, a Roman slave prisoner. Um, he's on the island of Patmos, which is in itself a very challenging place because it didn't have any natural water. Um, and all the water had to be carried from the mainland onto the island at that time. And so here, here he is. He's a Christian pastor, Christian apostle. He's um, a man who communicates in all of his writings of the love of Christ. Um, and here he is being brutally used by a Roman uh, authority um, as an old, old man. And uh, on the Lord's day, he receives a vision from Christ himself. And uh, the Lord asks him to, to write it down and to send a letter to the churches, to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, and he writes down what he sees, and even in the very writing of it, it's a challenge to him. There are many uh, experiences that he goes through as this vision comes to him, and uh, he is really challenged uh, as he writes it. Uh, by meeting the Lord face to face. And of course, he knew Jesus um, and walked with him, but now he's meeting the risen Christ um, um, in this vision. And the letter is a kind of report uh, on the condition of the seven churches. Uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who's preached here many, many times, um, and uh, when he preached on, on this portion he talked about the, uh, this, this letter being like a report from a physician who had just done a, a, an x-ray or a scan uh, on the church. And uh, I think that's a very good way to look at it. The, the eyes of Christ had seen uh, into the doings and dealings of the church and had written a report that all of these churches had to, uh, to read and to, to respond to. And so we need to see Jesus today as the great physician 
who's come along to the church of our day as well and has uh, written a report to us from what we can gather from uh, these words. Now, a little bit of background on, on the town or the city of Theatira. Um, it was uh, um, probably about five or 6,000 people, maybe the size of Kirimuir or something like that. Um, and it was called the Gateway to Pergamum. And so it was a kind of uh, a way that everybody passed through. We talked about the, the Masai Mara uh, earlier on with the children. And uh, there's a town called Narok in Kenya, which is known as the gateway to the Masai Mara. Everybody has to come through Narok to get to the, the part of the Masai Mara, the large part of the Masai Mara. And, um, of course, Kerry Muir is a good example, maybe. Um, it's the gateway to the Glens. Um, and people have to go through Kerrymuir to get up Glendall and Glen Prozen and so on up that way. And the only difference being that probably the people of Thyatira met, uh, lived in little mud houses. And I think Kerrymuir's moved on a wee bit from there, but uh, Narok hasn't really moved on uh, that much from there. A lot of mud houses there as well. And so it was a, a city where the, the people um, became wealthy uh, because they made purple dye, and it made the town very commercially viable. And uh, if you look in the book of Acts, chapter 16, uh, you'll, you'll see mention of a lady there called Lydia, who was uh, a, a user uh, of, uh, of dye. And in chapter 16, verse 13, it says this, on the Sabbath, this is Paul the Apostle writing, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women uh, who had gathered there. One of those listening was from uh, a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in public uh, purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, uh, she invited us to her home. And she said this, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my home. And she persuaded us. And so here is a mention of this woman who had traveled from Thyatira and was with Paul, the apostle. So the congregation in Thyatira was being challenged by the Lord because it had um, the whole church had yielded to sin corporately. Um, and this kind of situation is typical uh, that we're going to read and we have read um, of churches that tolerate sin. They tend to go for it wholesale. And we kind of see a little bit of that in our, uh, our own nation across the UK at the moment where uh, churches have become liberal. They've, they've uh, allowed various things to, to take place uh, as part of the church and of their service, and it's not good. And uh, here, uh, the Apostle John is responding as he writes this from Christ to the people. But churches are, are, can be very different in many ways, um, but we all hold this in common, if we are true churches of Jesus Christ, that we pursue holiness. And Jesus wants us to be holy um, as he is holy. We are to be God's holy 
people. Um, in First Peter chapter 2, it says there in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues or the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we've been, our position has been moved and the church needs to respond to that and to know that. And so um, here, the Lord Jesus Christ is communicating to his church and he wants to bring a form of discipline uh, to the church uh, as he uh, speaks to them. Thyatira was at home uh, to a Christian community from apostolic times right up until 1922 uh, when the Orthodox Church population was deported due to the political issues of the time. And so it has been a church for a very long time, but there is no longer any church in Thyatira. So in verse 18 of uh, chapter 2, of the book of Revelation, we read this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now here, Jesus is described as the Son of God. In chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll notice there that he's described as the Son of Man. Uh, there's a, a sort of sense of his humanity, uh, his love and his care for the people. But here, um, in verse 18, he is described as the Son of God, depicting judgment and holiness and his deity. And so there is no doubt about the identity of the one who's giving the message. This is the divine Son of the living God. And it's his divinity that we cling to as believers. Uh, but to unbelievers, those yet unconverted, this fact is, is quite awful at times. It's a very big, big challenge to them. The most challenging fact that he is infinite and immovable and divine and he is the eternal rock um, really um, does not please uh, many, especially atheists who... Um, will not accept uh, any of that. But we as believers cling very firmly to the fact that Jesus is God. And it's very clear from Scripture that that is the case. <clears throat> Tells us here his eyes are like fire. And we know that fire burns. It burns everything. It burns wood. It even burns stone if it's strong enough and powerful enough. It burns iron and melts it down. And his eyes pierce through everything. And he sees what's going on in his church. Yes, Jesus does weep tears for the unsaved. As in Jerusalem in, in Luke 19, he, he, he says that he, he wept for them. But he looks not only at the outward appearance, he looks into our hearts and he knows our hearts. And, and he perhaps knows them better than we know them ourselves. And so he has eyes like fire that are piercing and he looks into every detail of our lives. And it tells us here also that he has feet like bronze or brass. 
Now, I don't know if you know, but in biblical times, um, animals were used to, to thrash the grain, and so the animals would walk over the grain, and uh, the, the heads of grain would release the seeds, and then the, the, the remainder, the straw and the chaff, was thrown into the air, and the seeds would fall down and so on. Um, but sometimes the animals were fitted with brass feet uh, so that they would be able to more easily thrash the grain and d- d- break the, the um, heads to bring out the seeds. And here we're told that Jesus um, has feet like brass. And uh, he, he is working with his people. He's working with us to bring a good harvest uh, to his people. And uh, that harvest would then be prepared for food and some of it for seed again for the next uh, year's uh, harvest. And so in nine, verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and you're now doing more than you did at first. Now, all these are, are worthy virtues. It's good to be able to do more, and we can only encourage that the church gets involved and does more according to God's leading and guiding uh, with us. But we can do more things, but if there is evil at work in the church, then we have a crisis, because these things uh, mean absolutely nothing if, the, if we are allowing evil to be operating within the church. And so we must understand uh, that all of these things, love, faith, service, etc., are all good things, and doing more is a good thing. But allowing evil to infiltrate and to, to be involved in all of that is destructive. When we look at the, the biblical record, uh, about the, the town or the city of Thyatira. There's not an awful lot of detail given to us uh, anywhere, really. But and even some of the, the extra-biblical writings that we have um, only give us a, a little bit of detail. But the important thing for us to know is that Jesus himself knows every detail of every one of our lives. He knows what's going on in St. Peter's. He knows the challenges that we face. He knows our hearts as individuals. And so it's important for us to be so aware that Jesus is with us. Now that can be if you're involved in something that's ungodly, a worrying moment. But if you're walking with God, it's a real encouragement to us that he's with us and wants to take us forward. So he knows every detail about everything which we perhaps think are insignificant these little mud homes of Thyatira producing purple dye to make some money, that little place was known in detail to Jesus Christ because his people were there. His people worked there, lived there, served there, worshipped there. And he does about our own somewhat insignificant little city of Dundee. He knows He knows what's going on in the church, which is very important, but he also knows what's going on in the offices down in the city center as well. He knows every detail. 
And so as we understand that, we need to pray for our church, but we need to pray for our city and for our nation, in particular with a, 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 an election coming up in the next few days. We need to pray that the will of God and the purposes of God are fulfilled uh, in that. And so Jesus knows every detail of our lives as a church and a community. He said uh, to the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds. He said to others, I know where you live. I know your afflictions and your poverty. He, he knows every detail. And we can respond. We can, as, as believers, we can respond. As, as the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy and to Timothy says, I know who I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And so we can also know something. We can know Christ. We can know that Savior uh, who has come for us. Verse 20, nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. And we've been kind of waiting for this moment because the churches that he's speaking to, he's encouraging them in one way, but he's also challenging them in others. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, we've got to be very careful here with this woman Jezebel because um, we're not talking about um, a kind of strong woman who's, who speaks her mind and, and uh, is a bit of a challenge at times um, and maybe ruffles up feathers here and there. We're not talking about that kind of woman. And these women have to be encouraged, I think, at times because sometimes we need to hear uh, what's being said. This woman is somebody completely different. And we can't just band about that name Jezebel. Um, I can remember that from years ago, being involved somewhere where anybody who, who disagreed in any way was described as a Jezebel. And it's very unhelpful, and it's not good at all to do so. This woman was a, a preacher or a teacher who was leading corruption in the church. Um, and the same way as we see uh, in, the, in the book of Second Kings where Jezebel and, and Ahab were upsetting the situation for the prophet of God. The important thing is that we understand that this woman thinks that she speaks for God. In, in the first few chapters of Revelation that we've been looking at, there is no doubt that Jesus is the one who's speaking. He is speaking to the church, not some self-styled prophet or prophetess who thinks they have a better thing to say and something that the people should get involved in and that some kind of freedom should be brought. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Almost like that was just thrown in at the end there. 
that Jesus is the heir of all things, but we must remember he is the one who made the universe. And it's he who is speaking to us. This is the one that we've read of earlier on where the Apostle John couldn't remain upright. He had to faint at the feet of Jesus, even seeing him in a, vi- in a vision, and a dream. This is the Jesus that speaks to us through his word, through the scriptures uh, today. And so we're beginning to see more and more in this chapter that compromise with the world, and we'll see it in a moment as later on as well, leads to full-scale idolatry in the church and immorality. And the church is absorbed in sin and error. And what's worse, they're living happily with that. False teaching, idolatry, sin, immorality. They're living happily along with that because no one seems to want to challenge it. And in verse 21, this woman Jezebel uh, is referred to again. It says, I've given her time to repent. Isn't that amazing? Such is the, the grace of God to each of us that he gives us time to repent. He gives us time to turn away from the sin and the immorality of our lives. Sometimes we, we, we struggle with all of that and we don't know quite how to do it and what to do. But here he says she's been given time. And that we live in a time of grace. We live in a day of grace. Such that God could come at any moment and judge the world. But he's given us time to turn around and repent. But it says here, she is unwilling. She's unwilling. Now there's a whole debate to be had. And I'm not going to have it today if you don't mind. Um, there's a whole debate to be had on free will. Um, and to say that, for example, that God could not change her, mi- her mind around, that means that God is, well, he's not sovereign. And to say that God does change her mind, well, that means that God is some sort of puppet master and just, we all just do what we're told and we, we get wound up in the morning and off we go uh, with instructions. Suffice to say that this woman was unwilling. She was digging her heels in. She was not prepared to change. She was not going to do it. And, you know, stubbornness of heart is something that we as Christians are very familiar with because we can be very stubborn at times. But God gives us time to repent and to turn around. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, um, if you remember the story there, the prophet Samuel is speaking to Saul and gives him instructions on what to do and how to destroy the Amalekites and, and uh, so on. And of course Saul um, decides that he wants to keep the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and, and he keeps King Agag alive and, and so on. And the prophet Samuel challenges him and he tells him that stubbornness is as the sin of witchcraft. It's a very strong word for us. If we're going to be stubborn, it's like witchcraft to the Lord. And so we have to be very careful that we yield our hearts to the living one. And he tells us here in verse 22, Jesus tells us that he will cast her on a bed of suffering. 
and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they rep repent of their ways. And Jesus wants to bring discipline into his people. Um, the word um, so in verse 22, and I'm, I think I'm reading from the NIV um, here, says, it kind of means behold. And make sure you note this, that if she doesn't change, it's going to be tough for this woman and for those who commit adultery with her. It's a consequence of her sin. There are consequences to what we do and get ourselves involved in. Many challenging consequences. Very simply, if you walk out in the, in the middle of the road, in the Perth Road one day, it's highly likely the consequence is you'll be run over by a bus or a car or something. There are consequences to what we do. And here, there are consequences. And so he says, make sure you note this, that a bed of sin or adultery becomes a bed of suffering or judgment. There is a consequence, one or the other. But repentance is provided and the time to turn around. Then it goes on in verse 23. It says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, her children here um, means those who were her ardent followers. One of the commentators puts it like this uh, with regard to her children, that, that these words. Those who have not merely been beguiled into sin by her, but are united to her in a permanent moral relationship shall perish in some signal manner by the visitation of God. And so there are different people described here. There is this woman herself, there are her followers, and then there are others in the church. And when I read this, I was kind of reminded of, of the Gachacha courts in Rwanda. I don't know if you've ever read the story of Rwanda in 94, 1994, where um, two different people groups uh, lived in the country um, uh, and one rose up against the other and tried to destroy the other over a very long period of time until the very end, about 100 days in April, uh, from April, um, there was a, what's called a genocide when lots and lots of people were, were slaughtered by the other group. So you had one, one group who was in government and very strong tried to destroy the others who were uh, given no, no rights at all. And as a result of that, um, after the 100 days were over, there was a kind of war and people came in and stopped the thing happening. And then there was, at that time, about 100,000 people in prison in Kigali, um, in the capital city. Now, we're talking about a country the size of Wales, and they had 100,000 prisoners jammed in, and uh, it was a mess, it was a real mess. So they decided that they would have gachacha courts, and gachacha courts decided, they were kind of local courts, and they decided what would be the punishment for people. And they decided if you were a perpetrator of this crime, then you would have this punishment. If you were forced into doing a crime by somebody else, 
then you would have this punishment. And then if you um, stole somebody's goat, or, or, which is all brought into the genocide act, stole somebody's goat or somebody's belongings, bicycle or whatever, then there was another punishment for you. So the Gachacha courts came and decided for these different groups of people that there would be different punishments. And uh, they reduced the numbers in prison dramatically as a result of that because some people were sent home. Uh, if you've stolen somebody's goat, you go buy them two goats and that's your punishment. And you give them that back again. And uh, so they did it that kind of way. And here we see this determination of, of different groups of people. They had the people who were involved in the, the, the preparation of the, the sin, this woman, Jezebel. And then you had her followers, those who signed up to go with her and do the work that she was doing in the church and bring this destruction into the church. And then you had the others um, there as well. And so we can see that there are some in the church who are behaving in a very evil manner. And Jesus responds to that um, in John's Gospel when he talks about some of the, the um, religious hierarchy there. And uh, Jesus responds to his oppo opponents who, who, who believed they were Abraham's children. And he says, you are of the, your father, the devil. And you do not want the desires of your father. Sorry, and, and you do want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and a father of lies. And that's who we're involving ourselves with when we walk in opposition to God's teaching in the scripture and where the church is going. We're walking with our father, the devil, yeah, by doing so. And so, so we don't enter God's kingdom by doing good deeds, but we are measured in his kingdom once we have entered by doing good deeds. And then it says, then all the churches will know. And it's so important that this message that's being sent to this church in Thyatira is not just for Thyatira. All the other churches would read that letter as well. All the other churches would see what was going on. They were very close together um, where they lived. But we also, having read this, see that there's a message for us as well. That if we walk away from God, if we go away against God's principles and purposes for the church and we cause trouble, as this woman was doing, bringing in all sorts of evil stuff, then we will be in trouble. Not only the churches in Asia Minor, but the churches worldwide and in every generation. Here comes Jesus. He searches the hearts and minds. And he will repay each according to their deeds. And so it's a great challenge to us when we read uh, these verses. We often think that, well, once saved, always saved. And I, I do believe that, by the way. I'm not trying try to challenge that at all. But we can just then sit back and do nothing and wait until the glory comes. Hold the fort for I am coming, says the Lord, as the old hymn used to say. No, I think Christ says that, that there are deeds to be assessed as well. 
And there's the parable of the talents that we need to take um, cognizance of as well. Then he says in verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you, those who had not held to the teachings, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. You see where they were going with this. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And so he's calling them to hold fast. Part of the, the, the culture of Christian faith is to hold fast to what we have. He lists it in verse 19, these virtues of love and faith and service and patience. Hold fast to these things. There's nothing wrong with these. You need to hold on to them. And they have, you, have, you have to be commended for holding on to these. And in verse 26, he says, to those, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. Just like Jesus did on the cross. He, he went through what God had um, planned for him to bring an end to sin and death for us all. He went through it to the end. Now, we can't do that with our own strength. We need the strength of the Holy Ghost to come with us and lead us and guide us. Who does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. Now in Luke 19, there's an interesting verse there. It says, well done, my good servant. The master replied, because you have been trustworthy, I, in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So, in the same way this man was, was given responsibility for being trustworthy. And in Jesus is telling us here in verse 26 that he will give us authority over nations. So that there's an increase in what he's calling us to, but there's an increase in the responsibility that we have. Those who hold fast to the end will be rewarded by Christ. And then he says in verse 27, that one, the one who holds fast, the one who remains faithful, will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Of course, there's a, a reference to Christ in that. Just as I have received authority from my Father. So those of us who remain faithful will be given um, responsibility like this. And it says, you shall rule them but more literally means shepherd them um, rather than brutally rule somebody. It means to shepherd them and, and keep them in order um, uh, in that way. The rule over the nations is to be strong, but it's also to be loving. That's Christ. He's strong, but he's loving. To those who obey it, it will be shepherding. Shepherding into the purposes of God. It's only those who will not give in and will resist to the end, it says, will, will have the consequence of being dashed to pieces. He says, my rod and my staff, Psalm 23, my, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
rod being a place of principle and, and uh, organization and the staff being a shepherding. Both of these are, are true in terms of Christ's rule over the church and his expectation of us in our own lives. And so there's a time for us not only to uh, sidle along and to, to go along with things, but Jesus wants to deal with our hearts. It's, it's a big heart issue that, that, that we stumble over and we struggle with. Um, uh, as a young man, uh, when, I, when I was just very, very young, um, there were still horses on the farm where I worked, and it was one of the later farms to go on to tractors. The guy was very resistant to change, and uh, we had horses on the farm, so we used to uh, plow with horses and cultivate and so on with these uh, um, huge horses. And uh, as kids, we used to like to get a, a hurl on the back of the horse uh, every now and again. And so they were great animals. But sometimes when you were trying to bring a horse and, and, and train it to, to do what you wanted it to do, you had some struggle. These are huge animals. How does one wee man with a set of reins deal with these animals? And so um, the old gaffer on the farm who had had a lot of experience and he smoked a, a pipe and he had um, tobacco, these bars of tobacco. I don't know if any of you remember these from many years ago. None of us are going to admit, but um, he used to cut that and poke it and rub it and poke it in his pipe and smoke it. And uh, he'd cut a lump off and give it to the horse to chew. Um, and it made the horse feel a bit sick. And so they were much easier to control um, and break, if you like, uh, by doing so, that was his means of calming these great big animals down. And here we have Jesus speaking to us. He says, look, it's your heart that's the issue. I need to deal with your heart somehow. Now, I'm not suggesting he's going to give you a lump of tobacco to chew, but he's going to deal with our hearts. I think it's Vodi Bochum who, when he's preaching, he says, look, Jesus is not coming here to cuddle us and love us. He's coming to break us because he's got something for us to do. He wants to break us and make us into something for his purposes. Remember that old song we used to sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. There is something that Jesus wants to do in us. And it doesn't take away from his gracious, loving nature to say that he wants to make sure that we get it right and we live for him and that we walk for him. And our hearts are not violent, but our hearts are under control by the Spirit of God. Well, we're coming to an end, and um, it says here in verse 28, I will also give that one, that one who has remained faithful, the morning star. And he is, Christ himself is described as the morning star. And so therefore he promises to give himself to us. He becomes our portion uh, to the one who overcomes Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up, pay attention. That's what he's saying. Whoever has ears to hear. Listen up, pay attention. Do not miss the opportunity to obey. If the Spirit says something to us, we need to obey it. So what have we learned very quickly and very briefly? What have we learned? Well, Jesus' eyes of fire can break through even the toughest of defenses. Jesus knows every detail of our lives through good and bad times. Many deeds, love, faith, service, perseverance, doing more, needs to be as a result of an obedient, 
response in our hearts to Christ's call. Jesus knows every detail of our lives, where we live, what we do, the troubles that we experience. There's that old uh, slavery um, spiritual that, that was written, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Even though we go through difficult times, He knows. Compromise with the world will bring failure and destruction in an epic level. Stubbornness is not a good look when we stand before Jesus. And Jesus knows the difference between sheep and goats. We've got to do work. We've got work to do for the Lord. We need to get on and do it. There'll be instruction coming to us from this very pulpit, no doubt, when Andy begins to uh, preach the Word of God. There'll be instruction coming to us from the Lord. Andy and John and Craig and Andy Robertson, all angels of the Lord, they're all put there by God for His purposes, and we need to hear what God is saying. And so we need to work, we need to serve, we need to get the pearl of greatest price that will be ours when we get Christ Himself, and we keep going, and keep going until He calls us home. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would help us as we hear it, as we uh, allow it to take hold of our hearts and as you instruct us from it. Let it be useful to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.